Good morning. Well, as she said, my name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, uh, and we're beginning a series uh, in the Gospel of John. And so John begins like this. Uh, there's a prologue, a prologue where John is introducing the person of Jesus to us. And then as we go forward in the letter, uh, he's going to give proof, evidence, that what he's saying here in the prologue, the text that we're looking at today, is true. And so the structure of John, at least the first part of John, you could kind of summarize it like this, prologue and then proof. Prologue where we introduce Jesus and then proof where we have evidence that, that, that what John is going to say here in this introduction uh, about who he is, is true. And so what is John trying to do here in the beginning in this introduction, this prologue to the person of Jesus? What's he trying to do? Well, let me, let me try to frame it up with a story, a story that uh, some of you may or, or, or may not be familiar with. Uh, But C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, uh, two of the more influential authors on our time, the story goes like this, that in 1930, they were friends. Uh, Tolkien, at this time, was a Christian. Lewis was a deist, which which just meant, uh, I believe in God, but I don't necessarily believe in the God of Christianity or the God of X, Y, or Z. I just believe that God exists. And the story is that one night, they're, they're on a walk. And Tolkien is trying to persuade Lewis to believe. He's trying to persuade Lewis to to cross the line from deist to Christian. And Lewis turns and asks this question. What possible difference could a man who lived 2,000 years ago make for my life today? What possible difference could a man who lived 2,000 years ago make for my life today? I find that to be an honest question. I find that to be an honest and even legitimate question. Question: A question that I know uh, Christians and non-Christians alike wrestle with. But it's a question that John has an answer to. It's an answer that John is going to give today and that he's going to defend and prove in the weeks to come as the letter goes forward. And so as we're going to see today, as he sets out uh, who Jesus is in this prologue, he's going to say three things. One, who he is. Two, why he came. Three, what he did. So who he is, why he came, what he did, all building to the answer of what could a man who lived 2,000 years ago, what difference could he possibly make on my life today? And so let's start with what he did, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Did I say what he did? Beginning, I didn't mean that. I meant who he is. Sorry about that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, let's pause right here. To, to really grasp what John is doing right here, we need to know the audience that he's writing to. We need to, to understand the kind of the cultural context and setting that John is writing into because the setting, that to be honest, is not that different from our own in some ways. I heard a cultural commentator uh, uh, last week, one that I, I respect. I think he does a really good job of kind of uh, living in the center, pushing back in all directions. Uh, but he was commenting on the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, and he described it this way. He said, we're living in the middle of a truth fog, the middle of a truth fog. That His point was that there are competing claims for what's true coming at us from all directions, and it's hard to get through the fog and find what's actually true. His reference was more into uh, you know, cable news, social media, the internet, etc. But I think his point is legitimate. But we live in this truth fog where it's it's got, got competing claims from all directions as to what's true and what's not true. 
And he's saying it's hard to really get through the fog and figure out what's actually true. So while I think his point is legitimate, it's just not new. That's not a new cultural reality. That was true in the day that John was writing this letter, that the audience was a Jewish and a Greek audience, both of which had their own truth fog that they were living in. So let me explain what the Jewish truth fog looked like. These were the um, religious people. Here's what it looked like. On one hand, you had people showing up saying, hey, listen, I, I am the Savior you've been waiting for. I am. I know you're looking for a Messiah. I'm it. I'm the one. Come and follow me, and I will lead you down the path of religious enlightenment. I'm who you've been looking for. At the same time, there are different groups of uh, these religious Jews who are saying, no, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to come and join us, be a part of our sect, our movement. We will teach you the right way to read the Scriptures, and if you can learn to read the Scriptures the way we will teach you to read the Scriptures, it will lead to this religious and spiritual enlightenment that you so desperately want. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, it certainly would have been hard to know what's right, what's up, what's down. Who do I follow? Where do I go? Competing claims everywhere. And then there were the Greeks, the, the Greeks who lived in the world of philosophy and thought. And everywhere you turned, they had somebody new showing up on the scene going, hey, listen, I, I'm the one. I'm the one. Come listen to me. I will explain to you the, the world, how to understand the world, how to live in light of it. And if you will come and you will follow me, I will lead you down the path of enlightenment. Come, follow me. And right out of the gate, John is piercing through the truth fog that both Jew and Greek were living in at the time. So for the Jew, this is what the pierce through the truth fog looked like. He begins the letter with the words, in the beginning. What does that sound like? In the beginning, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the first chapter in the Bible, the creation story, in the beginning. But he goes back even farther than Genesis 1. He goes back farther beyond creation and says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see what John is saying here about Jesus? He's saying, listen, he is not some religious teacher showed up on the scene. He is not just any other new rabbi or religious teacher here to explain to you the Scriptures. He he is the uncreated creator who came. He is the uncreated creator. And if that wasn't enough, he called him the Logos, which to the Jew meant divine revelation, the word, the, the word, the divine revelation of God. His point was this, John is saying to the Jews who are listening to him and who are reading this, listen, Jesus is not simply some other interpreter of divine revelation. He is divine revelation. He is not simply a teacher here to show up and to teach you how to interpret divine revelation. He is divine revelation in and of himself. Not simply another teacher here to lead you down a path of some religious enlightenment. He is divine revelation bodily. And then there were the Greeks. And the Greeks, it was the the logos, which they thought of as the logic behind the universe or the reason behind the world. And to them, John is saying, listen, listen, guys, Jesus is not simply some philosopher. He's not some intellectual thought leader out there. He is the source and the origin of logic itself. He is the logic behind the logic of the universe. 
Even, even you Greeks, even your ability to doubt him came from him. Even your mental faculties to ask questions about him came from him. He is the logic behind the logic of the universe. He simply does not fit in any natural human categories, which they would have had too. Religious leader, philosophical thought leader. He doesn't fit either. He breaks the mold in both. Breaks the mold in both. He is divine, direct revelation from God as God, and he is the logic behind the logic of the universe. That's who he is. Now, why did he come? Why he came? Let's keep reading in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's a different John. Don't have time to get into that today. We'll get to that in weeks to come. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Okay, so John, the author of the letter, is using some metaphorical imagery here uh, with light and darkness. This light, saying Jesus is the light who comes to shine into the darkness. These, these themes of light and darkness, they're woven throughout the Bible and they bookend the Bible. They begin the Bible and they are at the end of the Bible. And so here's how the Bible begins. Genesis 1, you have creation and creation goes like this. All you have is darkness and then light breaks in. And then we get to Revelation, the end of the story. And here's what we have. All you have is light and no darkness is allowed in. That's why in Revelation 22 it says uh, that uh, night will be no more because darkness will be no more. See, here's the story of the Bible from the creation of light to the end of darkness. This is the story of the Bible from the creation of light to the end of darkness. So what is darkness then? Darkness is uh, symbolic for some of the most profound and difficult of all human circumstances. It's why if you've ever wrestled with depression, there's a chance you may have described it like this. I just felt a darkness come over me, and it was a darkness I couldn't get out of. A friend of mine, um, a dear friend of mine, a couple weeks ago was with him. Uh, his, he's my age, 42. Uh, he, uh, uh, um, his wife has cancer. I was asking him how the chemo's going, how the treatment's going, and he said it's going pretty well, X, Y, Z, and then he said this, we're able to start seeing light at the end of the tunnel. What's his point? When he uses that imagery, if we see light at the end of the tunnel, here, here's what he's saying. Right now, there is no light. We're living in darkness. The, the process that we've been through, it is a journey through darkness right now. Darkness is symbolic for some of the most profound and difficult of human circumstances. Sometimes it represents physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's all three. Sometimes they all three come colliding together. So I, if you remember back in Exodus, in, in, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, there were slaves in Egypt, and God was delivering them out of Egypt. One of the plagues was what? Darkness. Darkness. Listen to the way Exodus 10 describes that darkness. A darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. To be felt. There's a kind of darkness so profound that you could feel it. It's beyond, I just can't see where I'm going. A darkness so profound that you can feel it. Darkness represents the, um, uh, there, there's a darkness to rejection and to judgment. There, it's also imagery in the scriptures for spiritual blindness and for the absence of God. 
which is why Jesus would use darkness to describe hell. It's imagery for spiritual blindness and for the absence of God. And so John, when he says this light who came into darkness, who came into this dark world would come in and darkness would not overcome it. That overcome it, it's an idiom. It's to, to say it won't be extinguished. Saying that he, he's not coming as some candle that you can just hold up and blow out. He's coming as light into a dark world, and the darkness of the world will not be able to extinguish the light that is coming. Why? Because he is coming from God and as God, and where God is, darkness gets driven out. You remember back in the Old Testament, there were temples and tabernacle, and inside you would have lamps. Why? Why? Because where, where God comes to take up residence and reside, darkness gets driven out, foreshadowed to what's to come. In him, light, light that shines in the darkness, darkness that gets it driven out, darkness that will not overcome it. He came as the light, and now let's get deeper into why. Verse 9, the true light, which is light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he came, and he came as light to bring light and give light to everyone. What is this a reference to? It's a reference to bringing salvation, spiritual awakening into the world. It's why in John 8, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, that he came into the world, into a dark world to deliver people from darkness to light, out of the darkness that we are living in. And it says he came to the world, uh, which just means people, the nations, and the world did not know him. What does it mean to not know him? Well, to know in the scriptures is extremely intimate language. Here's one example uh, from Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Right. It's, it's intimate language in the Scriptures. Now, listen to me. I know a lot about Michael Scott, as you should too. I know he ran a paper company. I know he... Uh, made awkward, inappropriate jokes. I know a lot about Tiger Woods, but I don't know either one of them. I know my wife. I don't know Michael Scott, nor actually does anybody, and I don't know Tiger Woods, but I know my wife. But here's the thing. If Amanda had rejected my proposal, if on that night outside the water wall in Houston, Texas, when my buddy who was there to take pictures actually uh, got in her way, and she saw him. It wasn't funny then. I'm still not over it. If when I got down and I said, hey, um, will you marry me? If she would have looked at me and just said, nah. If she had rejected my proposal, you know what Amanda would be to me today? Not that different than Michael Scott or Tiger Woods. Somebody I know a lot about, but not somebody that I know. When it says the world didn't know him, it's that they rejected him. To know him is to have a relationship with him, to have intimacy with him. And when he comes, and when you know him, here's what happens. The light that came into the world in him, that it comes and breaks into the darkest parts of your life. It breaks into and purges the darkest parts of your heart and of your 
soul. And listen, there are plenty of imposters out there. It's why, it's why you know, as John said, the true light is coming into the world. The true light, because there's plenty of false light out there. Plenty of imposters from sex to career to marriage, all good things that can be imposters saying, listen, I have the power to heal you. I have the power to break into the darkness of your life and your heart, and I can heal. Listen, here, here's what you need. You just, you just need a little more money. Like if, you're, like if your portfolio was just a little stronger, you'd have the kind of security that would lead to some peace in your life. If, what you need is it's not just a little more sex, but you need a little better sex. The combination, that's where it's at right there. That you have that, and all of a sudden you're going to have the kind of fulfillment that you want in your life. Here's what you need. You, you need a boss who gets you. If you just had a boss who understood how, how valuable you really are, then all of a sudden all the broken parts of your heart and soul, they're going to go away, all of them imposters. All, all of them, John would say, no, no, no. That, that's not the true light. What, what you need, what, what you're searching for, only Jesus can give. Only Jesus can break into your life and actually give what it is that you are looking for. Imposters will not do the job. And it doesn't matter how big that bank account is. It doesn't matter how uh, respected you are at work. It doesn't matter the quality of sex. It, it, it is an imposter that cannot fill what your soul is looking for. Cannot do it. It doesn't have the power to do it. John is saying only Jesus only the light from him can break into your dark life and actually purge darkness out. Which takes us now to what he did. Look at verse 14. In the Word, this is where John gets clear about who we are talking about with the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is what he did. He became flesh, which is to say he became one of us and he became vulnerable. He became human. The divine word became one of us and he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, John could have used a thousand words to describe what's going on right here and he used the word tabernacle. To come and to tabernacle among us. What in the Old Testament, what, what took up residence inside that tabernacle? The glory of God. The glory of God came and took up residence, and he's saying he's coming as the glory of God. Saying so when you look back, when you look back and you read Moses, you read the stories of the temple and the tabernacle, it's a foreshadow to him. That glory that comes and takes up, it's the glory of the only Son, the one and only Son who was to come. And when he came, when he came, listen. That, that chasm, that concrete slab, that wall between God and man was busted through, shattered and exploded, just broken right through, and he came as the embodiment of grace and truth. Grace and truth, two things that typically don't go together in people. Amen? Typically gracious, but not always truthful, or truthful, but not so gracious. Grace and truth colliding, embodied in one man, and they meet perfectly in him. But there was something else about the tabernacle. It was also the place of sacrifice, where people would see their sin, and you would come, and you'd bring your offering. It was the place of sacrifice. You see, when the Word became flesh, He came, became flesh, and did so so that grace, truth, 
and glory would collide and they would collide on a cross. That the place of sacrifice would become him. And here's what happened though. They took him down from that cross and for a brief moment, for a brief moment it looked like darkness had overcome. For a brief moment it looked like John was wrong and that darkness had overcome the light that came into the world. And three days later he got up and he walked out of the grave because not even the darkness of death could overcome the light of Jesus' resurrection. Not even the darkness of death could overcome the light of Jesus' resurrection. And when you know that and you know Him, like when you know Him, not the way that I know some famous actor or an athlete, but the way that your husband knows a wife when you know Him, all of a sudden you have the questions, you see the answer to the question, what possible difference could a man who lived 2,000 years ago make in my life today? And when you know him, you don't read the end of our text in a depersonalized manner. It becomes personal to you. The end of our text is not some lofty theology. It's something real and personal to you. And so let's read it. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, which I think is the the fullness, is it's referencing the fulfillment of the story of redemption, him being the fulfillment of all that had come. For from his fullness or fulfillment, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if we surveyed a hundred people out there, a thousand people, and we said, hey, do you want people to treat you with grace and truth? Is that important to you? 100 out of 100 are going to say, yes, I want people to be gracious and truthful with me. But here's the thing. We want it with substance, don't we? Like, we don't want shallow, flimsy grace, shallow, flimsy truth. All right, so my wife and I, who I love deeply, uh, one of the wrestles that we get into, one of the debates that we have is that she will only say I'm sorry when she really means it. Me, I'll say it just to move on. And if we asked 100 people, who do you want? Do, do you want me or do you want my wife? 100 of 100 are going to say your wife. Why? We want crunchy, concrete grace and truth in our life. We don't flimsy grace and truth. We want it with substance. And John is saying, you've got it with substance. You've got it substance in the Word made flesh. You've got it in Him. He is the embodiment of grace and truth. And when it says we have grace upon grace, that word upon, it's to be in replacement of or in fulfillment of. That his point is this, that when he says the law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus, he's not saying, hey, listen, law, evil, that law was terrible. Finally, he came. That's not the point at all. Nowhere in the Scriptures will you find it speaking negatively about the law. The law was good. Jesus is just better. The law was good. Jesus is better. You see, the law could reveal the holiness of God and the darkness of your heart. It just couldn't close the gap. Only Jesus does that. The acceptance that you want, the acceptance with God that we're longing for, Jesus does that. The law could show the gap. Jesus fills the gap. Law is good. Jesus is better. And when the Word became flesh, truth and grace met. And when truth and grace meet and you know Him, it pierces through the truth fog in your own life. I mean, pierces right through it. And here's what I mean by truth fog. I mean the lies that we're tempted to believe. Cuts right through it. I'm not primarily speaking of CNN or Fox. It's not what I'm talking about. 
Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking when you open Instagram and you see somebody's perfect life out there and you instantly kind of feel like, oh yeah, my life's not quite so perfect. Pierces right through that truth fog and reminds you that one, what you see in pictures is probably an illusion. Two, comparison will suck the joy right out of life. Three, that Jesus died for you as you are in all of your mess in your real life, not to make you like theirs, but to make you more like him. And then four, that you are loved by the uncreated creator of the world and no amount of hearts on social media will ever fill the gap of love that you are searching for. Ever. Ever. It does not have the power to do that. Not even close. And this is why we plead with you to be in community. It's why we organize our church into what we call neighborhood parishes. These smaller groups of men, women, and children learning to live life together, trying to strive to fight and laugh and cry and hope together. Because when we need Jesus to speak with truth and grace into our life and pierce through the truth of fog, we need people who can do that. When he wants to speak to us, we need his people around us so they can speak to us, speak truth and grace into our life. That's why we need the Scriptures. That's why we plead, open the Scriptures on my uh, phone's lock screen, it says this. There's a difference in a structured life and a disciplined life. And then lists out 12 disciplines or 12 things that I need discipline in my own life to accomplish. And here's the first one. Open the Scriptures, read the Scriptures every day for my own enjoyment. Independent, apart from any sermon I might be prepping for or something I might be teaching, just read the Scriptures for my own enjoyment day in and day out. Let me tell you why. Because I, I, am, I am prone to feeling like a failure. I, I am quick to, to feel like I'm fumbling and failing, whether it's you or my wife or my children. Self-pity for me is right around the corner most of the time. And I need the Scriptures every single day to remind me that my identity, my worth, my security is not in what you think of me, not in how good of a husband or how good of a father I am. It's in what the Word made flesh did for me. It's in Him. And I need that repeatedly getting massaged into my mind and my heart so that I can live with grace for myself. And you need it so that you can open up and you can live with truth and grace for yourself so that you can look at your own life and say, yes, I do need to change. And you can say, I need to change without self-pity. Truth and grace colliding for us. Jesus was the embodiment of truth and grace. He was the embodiment of the life that we all want. And so those who would say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I am a Christian, I have a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of wrestles, I think John might say to you this, when you find the embodiment of truth and grace, when you find somebody who really lives a truthful, gracious life, you grab hold of that person, you become friends with that person. You don't just let that person get away. And John would say, this is what you have in Jesus, grab hold of him, don't let him get away. Grab hold of him, he is the embodiment of truth and grace, grab hold of him. I told you in the beginning that John structured his letter like this, prologue and then proof. Prologue and then proof. Here's why. John wrote the letter to cut through the truth fog. He wrote the letter to pierce through it. He gave a very clear statement as to what his goal is in writing this letter. Very clear. We're we don't have to be confused about why John wrote the Gospel of John. He told us in John 20, 31, and this is why, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote with a purpose. The purpose was to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what difference could a man who lived 2,000 years ago have on your life today? Here's one of the answers. There are plenty more. Here is one of them. For anyone searching for more grace and more truth in their own life, Jesus is for you. For anyone trying to learn how to live and apply this gospel to our life in a way that enriches the grace and truth that we live with, the gospel of John and Jesus is for you. And in the coming weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to explore some of the evidence, the proof, the signs that John gives that what he said about Jesus, the Word made flesh, the complete and total embodiment of grace and truth, that it's true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for this introduction to the Word made flesh. I pray that you would help us to apply the grace and truth that we have in Christ to our lives today. And I pray for those who wrestle and doubt. I pray that you would grant the willingness and courage to come back and to explore, to explore the proof, the evidence that John gives. And maybe, just maybe, maybe find it compelling and persuasive as John would want him to. We ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.